We're going to be in Psalm 2 this morning. And uh, Psalm 2 is kind of a special psalm to me. Uh, back in the last century, uh, I became a Christian just before I turned 19 years old in uh, 1974. And uh, when I became a Christian, I immediately got involved, involved in a church and got involved with the young adults group uh, at the church. And uh, I got a Bible which is a good thing. Um, and it's this one right here. This is a uh, New American Standard Bible. This, this was kind of the Bible back then that most people used. Uh, and it's a, it's a great Bible. I, we had a Christian bookstore uh, in town uh, where I lived who uh, was able to bind Bibles with this leather. It was really cool, and uh, so I got one. But what makes, this, what makes this psalm special to me is that the leader of the uh, young adults group at the time was a guy named Keith, <coughs> who uh, became my discipler. And he sat down with me one day, and we, he went over Psalm 2 with me. And he uh, talked about the, the, the various uh, information about in the stanzas, and he wrote notes in my Bible right here about Psalm 2. And I know you can't see it. He wrote it in pencil, so it's a little bit faded, but you can still read it. And, he, and what he wrote in the notes there was in each, each part of the passage is who was speaking. But I learned something about God from this passage, from this psalm uh, uh, with Keith. And uh, it's, it's just very special to me. Keith eventually went on to be a uh, translator, Bible translator with Wycliffe Bible Translators. And he spent a few years in, uh, with a tribe in Papua New Guinea that did not have a written language. And so he spent a lot of his time developing a written language for them so that he could translate the scriptures into that language. He wasn't able to finish the work because he died of cancer several years later, unfortunately. But uh, he's a great guy and special to me, and so this psalm is special to me as well. Let's go ahead and read it. And I'll be reading out of the NASB, the 2020 uh, edition, but uh, just because I think it would be good to do that. So let's read it. Psalm 2. Why are the nations restless and the peoples plotting in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their shackles apart and throw their ropes away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will announce the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have fathered you. Ask it of me and I will certainly give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them with like earthenware. Now then, you kings, use insight. Let yourselves be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son that he may not be angry and you perish on the way. For his wrath may be kindled quickly. How blessed are all, the, all who take refuge in him. In a lot of the Psalms, Caleb mentioned this uh, last week, a lot of Psalms have superscriptions on them, and in those superscriptions you often see the author identified. We don't have that here uh, in this case, but we do know who wrote Psalm uh, 2 because the New Testament tells us that. In Acts 4, Peter and John were uh, arrested by the Jewish council, and they were warned, do not speak in that name anymore, meaning the name of Jesus. And Peter and John famously replied, well, you judge for yourselves 
whether we should speak uh, about what we have seen and we have heard. And they eventually got released. And in Acts 4, 23 through 26, it says that when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported everything that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard this, they raised their voices to God with one mind and said, Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Why were the nations insolent and the peoples plotting in vain? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. They quoted the first two verses of Psalm 2, in addition to identifying David as the author. So we know David wrote this psalm. And it's interesting to note as well that when Peter and John and their companions uh, spoke this, they were applying the psalm to their own situation. And I think we'll be able to apply it to our situation as well. Now, how do we read this psalm? Well, there's two, two viewpoints that we can look. One is that it, the psalm is about David. And there are uh, indications in the psalms that, that it's possible David was thinking that. Uh, in Second Samuel 7, which we don't need to turn to, but I just want to read here. Uh, God says to David about his son Solomon, I will be a father to him, and, to him and he will be a son to me. So David may have taken that cue and used that as, a, as an inspiration in part to, to write this psalm. It's been suggested that Psalm 2 was written as a, uh, or used as a uh, song in the coronation ceremonies for Israeli kings. <clears throat> uh, and that's possible. And we can read the psalm with that context, and it's good to understand the context from it. But I don't think the psalm is about David. In fact, I'm sure it's not about David. And the reason I think that is because the New Testament makes it impossible for us to read it that way, or just in that way. The way to look at this psalm is to look at this psalm as about Jesus Christ. The New Testament, it, uh, this psalm is quoted uh, at least six times in the New Testament. It's alluded to many more times in the New Testament. And each time it's quoted, it always points to Jesus Christ as Messiah. For example, Hebrews 1.5, for, for to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son today, I have fathered you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. The, the writer of Hebrews was establishing the supremacy of Jesus Christ, and he quoted Psalm 2 to support that. In Revelation 2, 26 and 27, the one who overcomes and the one who keeps my deeds until the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod, with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are shattered. Also, as also, I also have received authority from my father. Again, there's a quote from the psalm talking about Jesus Christ. So this is about Christ. And the psalm is also prophetic. Uh, there's a passage in Revelation 19, uh, which we won't, I won't read the whole passage, although I encourage you to do so. And it's about Jesus Christ coming back. It's about his second coming and what's going to happen at that time. And what's going to happen is Jesus Christ is going to come back and he's going to defeat all his enemies. In fact, all his enemies, uh, when he comes, are gathering together, just like the psalm talks about, to defeat Jesus Christ. And in verse 15 of that passage, it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Uh, just as a, a side note here, I, you know, we often think about Jesus Christ as the one who loves us, and that's absolutely true. He died for us. 
he was resurrected for us. He offers himself for us, and that's full of love. But sometimes we don't think, or maybe we just don't remember, that another part of Jesus Christ's character is that he's the one who's going to execute judgment. And we need to remember that. It's one of the things I learned from Keith uh, way back when. David wrote the psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I think David saw that what he was writing was not about him, but it was about the coming Messiah, the Son of Yahweh. All right, so when we look at the psalm, we can easily divide it into four parts. So we have one psalm, four parts, and three voices in the psalm. Verses 1 through 3, it's the voice of David as he quotes the rulers of the nations. In verses 4 through 6, it's the voice of God as quoted by David. In verses 7 through 9, it's the voice of the Son, quoting God the Father. And in verses 10 through 12, the voice of David again, where he applies and uh, applies the message and gives an invitation. So back to Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. Why are the nations restless and the peoples plotting in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the, the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's tear their shackles apart and throw their ropes away from us. So in verse 1, David sees the nations as restless. Uh, The Hebrew word there also means angry or rage in an uproar. And it simply is talking about this gathering of people who are conspiring together to defeat God because they hate God. And we also see the condition of their hearts in these verses. They want to tear their shackles off, not realizing, realizing that the commands of God are for their good. And the kings know who they're against. They oppose the Lord, Yahweh, in that verse, and his anointed. They knowingly and they actively oppose God and his Messiah. David agrees with the viewpoint of David. It is knowing who they oppose. In Romans 1, uh, you don't need to turn there. Paul says, For since the creation of the world and his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived being understood by what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their reasonings, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind, of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. You know, sometimes you talk to people, and they claim or they indicate that, I don't know God, maybe they're an agnostic, I don't know about God. But at the core of us, of every one of us, before you become a Christian, before you become a believer in Jesus Christ, is the hostility that we have toward God. In Luke 19, Jesus told a parable. And the parable was about a nobleman who went away to a far country to receive his kingdom. And in the parable, the nobleman represents Jesus Christ. And it says that the nobleman called some of his slaves and gave them some money to invest and to use uh, until he came back. And then in Luke 19.14 it says, But his citizens hated him and set a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. That's our hearts. That's the heart of every human being before Christ. In Romans 8.7 Paul says, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. That's who we are. I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself like that before you became a Christian. I don't know if you thought of yourself as hostile to God, but according to the scriptures, you were. You were hostile to God. And we all are. 
And so it's not a surprise that the, um, the rulers of the earth knew who they were against. Richard Dawkins, uh, you may be aware of who he is. He's an evolutionary biologist and a raging, raging atheist. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. And uh, he said some things here about God, which I want to read to you. Bear with me. There's some big words <laughs> uh, in this quote. But he said, God is a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, an infanticidal, a genocidal, a philicidal, a megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. It's interesting that he thinks about that, thinks God is like that, a God he doesn't even believe exists. But before Christ, you and I were hostile to God. Maybe you'd, you, before you became a believer, didn't go around calling God a bully. Perhaps the people you know who don't yet know Jesus Christ don't go around calling God misogynistic. But we all are opposed to God. And we are, our whole lives, our instincts, our predilections, our lives are fundamentally opposed to God, unless we come to Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer said, men are opposed to God in their sin, and God is opposed to men in his holiness. Verses 4 through 6. This is the voice of God, where he laughs. He who sits on, in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So the rulers of the earth have conspired to overthrow God, and in response, God sits in the heavens and laughs. The word sit there means to be enthroned. God is sitting on his throne, laughing. And this laughing is a derisive, uh, uh, mocking laughter. It says there the Lord scoffs at them. And the, and the fact that he is enthroned, that he's sitting there and he's laughing uh, at, at these foolish rulers. That's, that's the basis. He knows they aren't going to be able to do anything against them. As far as I can tell, there's only two, places, two other places in the scriptures where uh, it says uh, that God laughs. One of those places, Psalm 37, 13, says this, The Lord laughs at him, meaning the wicked, he, he, for he sees that his day is coming. God knows what's going to happen to them. He laughs at the foolishness of those who oppose him. He's not laughing at a joke. He's laughing at the foolishness of people who oppose him. And then God's laughter turns to anger, David says. And out of that anger, God speaks to those who would rebel. And I think what he says, initially at least, is unexpected. He doesn't say, okay, I'm coming after you. No, he doesn't say that. He says that God has set up his anointed one as king in Zion to rule and to give the right to rule and execute judgment on the rebels. And when the rulers hear of this, they are terrified. You know, we live in a world with uh, rulers and governments and organizations and people. Governments like China, for example, whose one of their purposes to, is to eradicate Christianity. They haven't been very successful. There are groups like ones this past Monday who kidnapped 140 students from a Christian school in Nigeria. And up to now, we haven't heard anything else about it. 
There are criminal organizations who enslave young women for the sex trade, believing they're immune. And there are leaders in our own country who consider a virtue the killing of the unborn up all the way up until the point of birth. Of birth. We look around and we see all this injustice, we see all this hatred of God, we see all this, this sin, we look around and we go, when is it going to stop? When is God going to deal with this? Psalm 2 says God will deal with it. James Montgomery Boyce, who uh, wrote a commentary on Psalm 2, quoted uh, uh, C.H. Spurgeon about this passage. And he pointed out that uh, the emperor Diocletian, a Roman emperor, a great foe of Christianity, struck a medal with, which bore the, inscri- the inscription, the name of Christianity being extinguished. He didn't extinguish Christianity. On the contrary, at the time, Christianity was, a growing, was growing stronger than ever and eventually triumphed over Caesar's throne. And another emperor, Julian the Apostate, appropriate word, appropriate description, in the days of his prosperity, is said to have pointed his dagger to heaven, defying the Son of God, whom he commonly called the Galilean. But when he was wounded in battle and he saw that his time was over, it is said that he gathered up his clotted blood and threw it in the air, exclaiming, Thou hast conquered, O Galilean. So it has been throughout history, and so it will be in the end. Isaiah 40, and 23 says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It's he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to live in. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Psalm 2 is a promise that God will deal with those who oppose him. God's Psalm 2 is a promise that he will bring justice on all those who oppose him who do not come to Jesus Christ. Verses 7 through 9. This is a voice of the Son. I will announce the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have fathered you. Ask it of me, and I will certainly give you the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. Jesus is in his position as Messiah and King. God has, has set him up that way. And in this, these verses, there are three things, at least, that we need to note about, about the Son, about Jesus Christ. First of all, he declares, Yahweh declares that the king has installed his son. And this language uses the adoption language of the ancient Near East as it relates to kings. And in that culture, the kings were thought of to be divine sons of deity, actual sons, divine sons of deity. In Jewish thinking, however, Israelite kings were sons of God by covenant. As one became, became a king, God adopted him by virtue of God's covenant with the king. Referring to 2 Samuel 7 again, God says, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. This adoption was seen as eternal. In Psalm 89, 26 and 27, God says, referring to, uh, I think it was David, he will call to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I will also make him my firstborn. I will make him my firstborn. So this is this adoption language that was common in the ancient Near East. The second thing we need to know about the son here is that the adoption included an inheritance, which is also viewed as unconditional and eternal. The son here in this passage is given the freedom to ask for the right to rule the nations and its rulers. That the nations are the son's possession implies that they are his personal property forever. 
And the third thing is the right to rule includes the right to, under this decree, to execute God's judgment on the rebellious nations. The image of using a rod to smash pottery would be familiar to David's readers. Egyptian pharaohs celebrated their rule by writing the name of their enemies on a piece of pottery, a pottery jar, something like that. And then they take their scepter and then they smash the jar, indicating their supremacy over these other rulers. In fact, the word scepter may be a better translation in Psalm 2 for rod. And then there's one more consideration. The sun reports in verse 7 that Yahweh announces to the sun, Today, he, that is God, fathered the sun. So when was today? We know, of course, that God did not literally give birth to the sun. They are co-equally members of the Trinity along with the Holy Spirit. So what is, what is he talking about? What, today, what is today here? nice thing about the scriptures is they often answer our questions about the scriptures. In Acts 13, 32 and 33, when Paul was preaching in the synagogue in Pisidia in Antioch, says this, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise of, uh, to those of us who are descendants by raising, Je- by raising Jesus. As is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have fathered you. Paul equates the resurrection with the day that Jesus received the right. And Paul backs this up in Psalm, or in, uh, Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, familiar, I'm sure, to you. Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And then verses 10 through 12. David speaks again. Now then, you kings, use insight. Let yourselves be instructed, you judges of the earth, Serve the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, that he may not be angry and you perish on the way, for his wrath may be kindled quickly. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So the rebellion has been noted. Yahweh has installed his Son as king. He has given him the right to rule and to execute judgment. And the rebels are properly terrified. If this was a a psalm that was written by an earthly king, I think the earthly king would have stopped at verse 9 and just executed his enemies. But uh, Psalm Psalm 2 doesn't stop there. The rest of the psalm, verses 10 through 12, is an invitation. And David suggests he actually commands five things that the king of the earth should consider. The first, uh, first two applications... In verse 10, the first one is to use insight or wisdom, the idea of giving attention to something. The same word is used in Psalm 53, too. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of mankind to see if there's anyone who understands. That's the same word, wisdom, who understands, who has insight, who seeks after God. Seeking God is the highest wisdom. And David invites the rebellious to seek God. 
And the idea is to look at the look at the landscape, look at see what's going on, look at everything that's happening, see your options, and then make a decision using insight, using wisdom. For the kings of the earth, they need to observe that God rules. That there's a son on the throne, that the son will deliver the consequences of rejecting God. Second thing that David says the king should do, and it goes with seeking him, is being is. Uh, Willing submission to instruction. As the psalmist in 119.124 says, Deal with your servant according to your graciousness and teach me your statutes. For believers, as well as for those who oppose God, the wisdom of seeking God leads to the desire to be instructed by him, to, by him, to learn from him. The third and fourth things that the kings should consider doing come in verse 11. The third one, is to serve him with reverence or fear. Nehemiah uh, was allowed to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And, and in fact, the uh, Xerxes who allowed Nehemiah to go made him governor uh, of Jerusalem. And this was after the uh, Jews were allowed to return to the homeland after the exile. And Nehemiah gets there, he starts setting up, and he makes an observation in Nehemiah 5.15. He says, The previous governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. Nehemiah says, But I did not do so because of my fear of God. Nehemiah was a godly man. It wasn't like he, I think he felt that God was going to strike him down as soon as he'd made a misstep, but he his understanding of what God had done for him, his understanding of what God had provided for him, <coughs> produced a reverence in him that drove him to do what God wanted him to do. And it's the, it's the same idea uh, that we understand as being freed from sin. In Romans 6, 5-7, through 7, Paul says, For you have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for the one who has died is freed from sin. We have been freed from sin. We don't have to sin anymore. And that thinking, that idea, should drive us to serve God in reverence. And the fourth thing goes with that is to rejoice with trembling. The word for trembling here is to shake or quake. Um, being from California, I'm kind of familiar with quaking. The rejoicing is the idea that God has not executed on me the wrath I deserve. As a believer, I have been spared the rod. God has saved me from his wrath. Knowing that leads to rejoicing, and even in hard circumstances. Peter expressed this well when he was talking to believers about the believer's inheritance in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 6-9. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And the fifth thing that Psalm 2 calls the rulers of the earth to do is to worship. Kiss the sun. You could also translate that to pay homage, 
to the sun. And you're probably familiar with this. But uh, in the ancient Near East, when one king conquered another king, the conquered king would need to come to the uh, conquering king, usually once a year, to pay him a tribute, to pay him money, and to what in effect would be to worship the conquering king. And the way they would do that would be by kissing them. That background, that concept is, provides the background to this when, when the author of Psalm 2 says, kiss the son. And if you read the verses, you can sense there's a sense of urgency involved here. You need to pay attention to this and, and do this. And the Hebrew for kiss means to kiss intently. This is true worship. We aren't conquered by Jesus Christ. We are invited by Jesus Christ to join him in how he conquered sin and death. So this is not a, a worship of, uh, by uh, compulsion. This is true worship, not a kind of a rote worship, but an intense worship that springs from the idea that I am saved. I am not subject to God's wrath, but subject to his blessing because of what he has done. And in verse 12, verse 12 in the passage, there's one more thing. The invitation of Psalm 2 is to find more than a way to avoid God's wrath but and to escape judgment. It's to know that how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. The Hebrew word for refuge here is hasah. And it means more than finding a safe place in the storm. It's a place where one will find safety and rest and comfort. This refuge can be trusted. You can trust God to keep you. And it's also personal. You get to take refuge in God as if he were your dad. Now, uh, many of us didn't have loving fathers. And so sometimes that idea is a little hard to understand. My father uh, was not a bad guy, but he... He didn't express love. He wasn't a guy I could come running to. Uh, and then after my parents' divorce, my mom married another fellow who became my stepfather. And he was worse. He was, he was both physically and verbally abusive. So I didn't have a good role model. But over the years, I've learned that God does love me. And I've learned that God does want me to trust him. And I've learned that God will take me in. And I've learned that God is a safe place is a refuge. I have come to believe that God will protect me based only on him and what he has done. And for us believers, we can trust God because of what Jesus has done. It's not just a safe place of re uh, refuge. It's not just a safe place. It's a place of understanding blessing and goodness. Psalm thirty-one, nineteen says, How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have performed for those who take refuge in you before the sons of mankind. I said earlier that uh, the early believers applied Psalm 2 to their situation, and I would suggest that we can apply Psalm 2 to our situation. <clears throat> the early believers recognized that Jewish rulers opposed God and his son. They further recognized the one the rulers opposed will defeat their plots, if not today, certainly at the end. So we can apply this to our own situation. You may have to deal with someone who hates God. And hates Jesus Christ, whether their hatred is open or subtle. Perhaps someone in your family or at work or at school, someone in your neighborhood. Recognize that God knows. And at their hatred, he laughs. And then finally, recognize that God gave you, as God gave you an invitation to come to him. And to reap the benefits of making him 
your refuge of believing on Christ and receiving God's grace when you were, when you were hostile to God. That same invitation is extended to those around you who hate God. We understandably don't like people who hate God. There may be even times where we express hate toward those who hate God. But David in this psalm reminds us that like them, we were once like them, and that God extended an invitation to us. That same invitation is extended to them, and we can be a part of that invitation. We can be the ones who share Jesus Christ. I was talking to somebody this week. Um, we were talking about, oh, it was Kelsey. We were talking about evangelism and uh, sharing Christ and, you know, going to Starbucks and sharing Christ with people and, and stuff like that. And Kelsey talked about a situation where she shared Christ with the guy, and on that very day, within 20 minutes, he accepted Jesus Christ. And then she talked about another person she shared Christ with, and that person turned angry and hostile and just shut her down. Kelsey did what God had called her to do. She had extended an invitation to both of those people. And while one accepted, one didn't. That one who didn't still hates God, but it's still our right, as well as our responsibility, to share Jesus Christ. And I'll end with this. Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote a song called Be Still and Know. He wrote it a long time ago. It's one of my favorite songs. And I think uh, Nate's going to share that with us today. But part of the verse, part of the song says this, Be still and know that he is God. Be still and know he is our Father. Come rest your head upon his breast. Listen to the rhythm of his unfailing heart of love, beating for his little ones, calling each of us to come. I think that speaks to the refuge that we have in God. Well, it's uh, communion time. And I... And I have come to think of communion not just as a ceremony or a ritual that we do. I've come to think of communion as a time to engage with God. I think of communion as a time to, to speak with God and to touch him. Um, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about how we should approach communion, and he says that we should examine ourselves to make sure that things are the way they should be between me and God before we take communion. And I'd encourage you to do that in the, in the moment here before we come up and take it and then Jesus when he gave the first communion to his disciples says do this in remembrance of me as we take communion we should be remembering what Jesus did for us we should remember that he saved us we should remember the awful death that he experienced for us and we should remember the resurrection and remember that he's coming and he'll take care of all those who are hostile to him, and we can come to him as a place of refuge. Communion can be an experience of that refuge, and I'd encourage you to think that way this morning. As we come to take communion, uh, I mean, most of us have done this before already, so you know what's going on. There are the cups there with the little wafer in the top of the cup. You peel back the top, and you get the wafer. If uh, you need to be gluten-free, there are some wafers here on the right side right side of the table uh, and if that serves you uh, you can do that let's pray and then we'll come and take communion Father God thank you for your word thank you for Psalm 2 thank you for David 
who wrote it, and not just wrote it, but he understood what he was writing. And he was able to look and see, Father, that you have installed Jesus Christ on the throne and that Jesus Christ has the right to rule and the right to execute judgment on those who don't love you and who hate you. Thank you, Father, for inviting us to love you. Thank you for inviting us to be saved by you. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to be uh, an instrument of yours to share that same invitation with others. In Jesus' name, amen.